God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and all of God's people say, Amen. Our sermon passage this morning is going to be Romans chapter number 8, and so uh, we're going to pause our uh, sermon series that we had begun through the Bible, and during the season of Advent, we're going to meditate upon the theme of living in the light of Advent. The Lord has come, His first Advent, His first coming. The Lord is coming again, His second coming, His second Advent, and we're going to look at various passages that uh, encourage us and exhort us on how we are to live in the light of the Lord's first, as well as, especially for us, his second coming again. So Romans chapter 8, and we're going to pick up reading at verse number 18, down through verse number 27. Here is what God says through the Apostle Paul. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we, know that while the whole, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And together all of God's people say, Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 8, this great and glorious passage that uh, many of us love as our favorite, including myself, Paul leads us from our past justification, that's in verse 1, for example, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's justification, meaning that we are justified, that we are declared just, declared righteous in the eyes and the sight and the presence of of Almighty God, and he accepts us as his children. So Paul leads us at the beginning in verse 1 from this past declaration of our justification, and then he moves throughout this chapter, coming into verse 13, for example, to our present mortification, meaning our sanctification, our mortification of our sins, or dying to our sins. We call that sanctification. That's the, the lifelong process of living out that declaration of justification, in which we more and more begin to, little by little, love God and love neighbor. We, be, we begin to become more holy, more sanctified. And then he ends up in chapter 8, verse 17, just before we begin our reading this morning, with our future glorification, that we will one day be like Jesus. We will see him face to face. We will no longer have sin, no longer have death, no longer have pain no longer have any of the effects of the fall. And so our past justification, our present mortification or sanctification, and our future glorification, verse 17. And then we begin this morning. So it's this great and grand sweep of the whole life of the believer. And then in verse, 18, or verse 17, excuse me, the end of verse 17, the apostle says to us that our life as believers, in fact, follows the very pattern, the very life of Jesus. Notice that in verse number 17, where he says to us, 
if, if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our life follows Jesus' life. That's what it means to be sanctified and the path to being glorified. That we suffer in this age and one day we will be glorified in an age to come. Well, what's the connection between these things? What's the connection between this age and this age that is to come? The life of mortification of sin, sanctification, and that glorification to come. What's the connection between your sufferings in this age being likened and united to Jesus, and the age that is to come. Well, you will be like Jesus, but yet not in suffering, but in glory. That's what verse 18 tells us. There's a connection between these two things. He says this, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And it's that glory that's going to be revealed to us that we are longing for and hoping for and we celebrate in the season of Advent. That we are longing and looking for a world to come in which there is no more sin, death, or pain, but all things shall be made new. But until then, there is an age of sufferings. So how are we to evaluate in this life as believers our sufferings and longing and looking for that age to come in glory? So how are we to live in light of Advent? Notice that Paul doesn't say there in verse number 18, the suffering, singular. He does not say the suffering of this present time are not, worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory. There's not just one suffering, one key or major suffering in this life. Instead, he says the sufferings, plural. The sufferings of this present time. There are many ways in which we, as creatures, as human beings, especially we as believers, there are many ways in which we suffer in this life, in this age. This age between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' coming, or his first and second advent. First of all, there's the spiritual suffering that our, uh, that our brother, uh, Reverend Jefferson, uh, prayed for this morning. The spiritual sufferings that we have at the hands of the world and the devil that cause us to experience and suffer persecution. In this holiday season, we're going to spend lots of time with neighbors and co-workers and family especially, many of whom do not believe in Jesus. For many of us who are almost, if not the only believer in our families, there are several of us in this room, many of us in this room, that's going to be us. We're going to experience the sufferings of following Jesus. But yet we are to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, the Apostle Peter said, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you see, Peter himself always uh, also saw what Paul the Apostle saw, that our life is patterned after Jesus' life, that we suffer now, but we are glorified later. But there's also the sufferings that we experience because of Adam's sin. So there's the sufferings of being a believer, but there are also sufferings that all of us share as human beings, believer or unbeliever alike. Adam sinned and has caused our world to become a fallen place, as we describe it. No longer standing upright on its own two feet, we are fallen flat on our faces in sin. Genesis 3 tells us that women suffer in childbirth. Uh, and also tells us, or told Adam, as a man, that he would suffer the agonies and the monotonies of his own work. And in this time of the year, again, we remember that many will suffer hunger and loneliness when many of us are spending time with feasting and family. We suffer illness, whether it's the common cold or something more serious. We suffer injuries, for example. We suffer disease, some curable, some not. We suffer want. And in a time like today, when many are stressed out financially, it reminds us that this world is not all there is. We suffer death, and many of us have lost loved ones in the last recent couple of years, myself included. And that leads only to what? More suffering, 
more sadness. But in all of your sufferings, brothers and sisters, know that God knows your sufferings. They don't surprise him. They're not something outside of his, outside of his will and his purpose for your life. Whatever evil he sends upon me in this valley of tears, our catechism says, God will turn to my good. How? He's able to do it, being almighty God, willing also being a faithful father. So what's your suffering today? Know that God is able to turn it to good. That's what chapter 8 of Romans, verse 28 tells us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is able to turn our sufferings towards good. He's willing to do it. He's willing to do it because he himself is good. Now, one day our sufferings will end and there will be what Paul describes here as glory. According to verse 17 again, we are united to Christ. We're joined to Jesus in his sufferings and in his glory so that we suffer now in this age, again, whether it's persecution, whether it's common things that we suffer as human beings in our fallenness, all so that one day we will be glorified with Jesus. All that he experienced as the Son, we will also experience as his sons and his daughters, his children. Now, children, uh, you've probably played with Play-Doh, maybe modeling clay. So how do you know how to take a lump of modeling clay or Play-Doh, and how do you know how to turn it into, let's say, Shamu in uh, a killer whale? Or how do you know how to turn that lump of clay into a tiger? Or maybe just a little model of you or your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, someone else. How do you know how to take that lump of what looks like nothing and turn it into something? How do you know how to do that? Well, you probably either have a picture in your head of what, say, a tiger looks like or a bird looks like or what you look like. Or maybe you even have a picture right in front of you. Jesus, Paul is telling us, and he says throughout this chapter, Jesus is the picture, and we are the clay that God is molding. We're the clay that he's molding according to that picture of who Jesus is in his sufferings and in his glories. This glory that will one day be revealed. So how do we, how are we to evaluate our sufferings in light of the glory of God to come? The sufferings of this present time are to be considered in light of the glory that is to be revealed. And they're not worth comparing, he says. Notice that again. They're not worth comparing. Your sufferings are not worth comparing. In other words, evaluate your life in the light of what God says in his word about your life, not only now, but your life that is to come. It's so easy to think of this life as nothing but darkness. But we need to think of our lives in the light of eternity and glory. And when we weigh the sufferings of this present age in our lives with the glory of eternity, this should help us to be set free from spiritual depression, disillusionment. How is God going to use suffering in my life? How is God going to relieve me of my sufferings? How will God ultimately get me to glory? Your sufferings are earthly things, but God's glory is eternal. Sufferings are temporal. Glory is forever. Now, he goes on, Paul does. Paul goes on to describe three, uh, three people, we'll just say, say it like that, three people, uh, three things that are longing for this. Three things that are suffering, but yet are looking for glory. Three things that are in this age seemingly suffering and looking for glory. And first of all, he describes here the creation itself is longing and groaning and hoping that it might be freed from its sufferings and that it might be uh, brought into that glorious state in which God intended it to be. And so we said that in verses 19 to 22. Creation's grown. So if we were to put our sufferings and the world's sufferings on a scale, they would be as light as a feather, Paul is saying, while glory to come would be as heavy as an elephant. If we were to put our sufferings on a timeline, they would be just a small 
little faint infinitesimal dots. And the glory that is to come would be that infinitely extending arrow. And Paul illustrates this, he's saying, that our sufferings are not worth being compared with glory. He illustrates this, first of all, by saying that the creation itself is also groaning. Notice that again, verse 19 to 22. 19 to 22. The creation waits with eager longing. Verse 19. It waits with eager longing for something. Now, verses 20 to 21 speak of the creation's subjection. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It is in bondage, verse 21 says, to corruption. Notice that that language there. So creation changed, and it became subjected to futility. That's describing the fall. Genesis 3 describes God cursing the ground, saying that it was going to produce thorns and thistles, pain-filled plants with sharp spikes and frustrating weeds that choke out harvests. We have lots of palm trees here in SoCal, and if you're like me, you have to trim the palms every once in a while. If you have a palm tree like a Phoenix Rubellini, you know that it has thorns uh, that spike you, and sometimes when you pull back, you break one off, and they get stuck in your hand. And they sting, and they hurt, and they get irritated. That's a thorn and a thistle. Frustration. Pain. That's what creation is. Subjected to futility. It's not living up to its promise. Everything seems to us to be vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We know that frustration, too, as human beings that we haven't lived up to our own personal potential, that frustration that we might have on a personal level is true in a cosmic level, the apostle says. Well, why did it change? Why did creation go from being this glorious place where God lived to a place that was subjected to futility, in bondage to corruption? God subjected it, Paul says in hope. He isn't the author. God isn't the author of this futility. But because of sin in the garden, God then pronounced a curse upon everything. Think of a parent who makes a bad choice, leading to his or her children's or child's emotional or social, spiritual growth being lessened or slowed or stunted. Our own personal choices sometimes have tragic ends and tragic results upon our own children, let alone everyone else and everything else around us. If that was true of the whole world, if the whole world was subjected to futility because of one man's sin, Adam's sin, our first father, it should be true in our lives as well. And so we have been conceived, we've been born, and we grow up. But then there's a cycle of decline, decay, death and decomposition. Creation was subjected to futility. But the same creation that is in bondage, Paul says, is also busy in supplication. Verse number 19, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. Notice that that verb there. It's always used in the New Testament to speak of the end of all things. And the image that this eager longing gives is of someone lifting up their head who's longing and looking for someone to come who's just out there on the horizon. So kids, maybe during the summer you went to some uh, to the San Diego Fair or maybe this Christmas season you'll be out uh, in a big crowd of people seeing lights and perhaps uh, there's a parade or something else and, and maybe you'll hear someone yell out in the crowd, there he is! What do you do? You're lower to the ground than the, the adults around you. And so you look up, you kind of jump up, you're trying to see above the crowd, you know, who is it? What are they talking about? Maybe your dad picks you up and puts you on his shoulders to see. That's the creation. Expecting to see, longing to see, wanting to look above the crowd of frustration and See this thing that is coming. And so creation is like a child that is earnest and expectant to see what? The revealing of the sons of God. 
But then Paul switches the image, doesn't he, there, verse 22. He switches the image to say that creation's supplication for the end of all things is like a mother in labor pains. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of us men have no idea what that, what that feels like, do, uh, do we? No idea. I think it was Bill Cosby who said the feeling of pain uh, in childbirth was taking your lower lip and pulling it over your head. That's what it felt like. <laughs> but the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. The pain is serious, but notice it's also temporary. Like the fertility of the ground, the pain is a result of the curse of God, where God told Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Paul, in this section here, he's personifying the creation as if it was a person, right? As if it had a heart and, and a desire and eyes to see and a, and a longing like, like a mother and so forth in pain, suffering. But he's doing this to encourage you. Are you eagerly longing for your sufferings to end so that you can see Jesus face to face? That's, that's the one that we're looking for. Straining our heads and looking up above the crowd to see him. Do you feel like your life is full of the pain of childbirth and it just won't end? But be encouraged, Paul says. You're not alone. Everybody else around you is experiencing the same frustrations. The whole creation, in fact, is suffering frustration today. You're not alone. Lift up your heads and see the coming of the Lord. Now, in, in the fog of this despair that it feels like it can be, verse 20 describes creation's salvation. God cursed creation, but he did so, verse 20 says, in hope, interestingly, in hope. God put in the very DNA of the creation this hope that the creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's bondage now in this age. There's freedom to come. There's corruption. There's renewal. There's futility now. There's glory to come. And this hope that God has put into the very fabric of creation is an example of being hopeful and being patient as we suffer with Christ and await to be glorified, verse 17, with him. I mentioned uh, the, the palm tree, the Phoenix Robolini, the pygmy date palm, uh, as, as we call it, the pygmy date, uh, pygmy date palm. Uh, and I find them to be an astounding, an astounding example of hope and patience. Every, every several months or so, a couple times a year, we have to go out, it used to just be me, uh, praise be to God for having four kids. Now it's the kids' job to do this, to go out and cut down the Phoenix Robolini. Uh, they, they, they just grow and grow and grow. I guess I planted them uh, fairly well back, back in the day. But you've got to go out, you've got to cut the branches. They, they just begin to be just too much. And if you don't cut them fast enough, the branches begin to die and they just look really ugly. So you've got to cut off all the branches. And then you've got to clean off all the dead ones. And they have these messy flowers that bud and just make a mess of everything. Seeds everywhere. But every time we go out to cut those Phoenix Robolini, they're taller and they're more luscious than they had been before. As if they were patiently enduring my neglect. I don't have a green thumb. I've got a blue thumb, I guess. I don't really have a green thumb, but there they are, growing somehow. And somehow where ours are planted, they are in the shade of my house and my neighbor's roof, but somehow they keep growing. Entire trunks have moved and contorted to get above and around and over the, the trunk and the branches that are planted in front of them, all in the hope of light, all just longing for light. It's a great example to us of living in hope, being patient through suffering knowing that one day every tear is going to be wiped away? Are you longing with hope for that final day in which a new dawn will never set? That's the hope that we have. That's what creation's waiting for, Paul says. If creation, how much more you who've been set free from your sins and the curse? 
You see, salvation is about more than just you and me personally in our own personal relationship with God. It's cosmic. We have become new creations in Christ. That's all throughout the New Testament. But one day there will also be a new heavens and a new earth. We'll come to that in the weeks to come. It's more than just you. It's about the whole thing, the whole thing God made. In hope, creation waits with eager longing, verse 19. It's growing together in the pains of childbirth, verse 22. For what? The revealing of the sons of God, verse number 19. The whole creation is waiting and longing and agonizing for you and for me to enter into that face-to-face fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we will experience at Jesus' second advent, the second coming to make all things new. And so here we are at the end of another year, and we're reminded again of how time is relentless and time is ruthless. Have you begun shopping yet? Time's running out, right? Have you started making your plans for Christmas cookies? You better hurry for all the ingredients are sold out, right? And they're getting really expensive these days. So here we are again. Time reminds us that it is ruthless and it's relentless And we are reminded that our pain, our sufferings, and our trials, they hit us like one wave after another. One of our hymns says it like this, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Meaning they all die. We all die. They fly, forgotten as a dream. Dies at the opening day. Paul then transitions from the whole creation to the Christian's groan, to your groaning. Not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves grown inwardly. Why? Why? Because there's something that you already have, but there's also something that you don't yet have as a believer. What do we already have that causes us to long, to groan inwardly? What's the the one that we have within us that causes us to groan? Notice he describes the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit within us. You already have the Spirit, he says. The Spirit blew into our lives like a wind that caused us to be born again, John 3. To give us new life. We call that regeneration. New life. The power of God in our own lives. And so we've all had an earthly birth into this world, but we've also, as believers, had a heavenly birth into a world that is to come. And so we already have that spirit who is the first fruits. And he's called the first fruits here. Because in the Old Testament, the first fruits are what the people of God would offer. The first fruits of their families, of their fields, their flocks. It was all a symbolic way of saying to the Lord, when you brought the first ear of corn, or you brought the firstborn lamb, or you brought your own son to be dedicated at the temple, it was a way of saying, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. Here's a first part of it, but everything is yours. That's what a first fruits is. But what does Paul say? It's really interesting. So in the Old Testament, it was the believer who would bring the first fruits and offer it up to God. But Paul here says that we have the first fruits. Notice that. It's not that, it's, that God has it because it's offered to him like in the Old Testament. We have the first fruits, meaning God has given us, God has given us the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you see that? In the Old Testament, we would bring, the people of God would bring first fruits to God and offer it to Him as an offering of righteousness and thankfulness. Paul says, We are given by God the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's like in that story in the book of Numbers that we looked at a couple of Sundays ago where the spies went in, all 12 of them, and they brought back, remember, a token of what the land of promise was really like. What did they bring back? Grapes. How heavy were those grapes? Remember? It took two adult males with a long stick over their shoulders and hanging down on that stick was just one cluster of grapes. So big, so heavy, that it took two men to carry those graves back in as a little down payment, as a little foreshadowing, a little picture. This is what wait awaits us. And this is just one little cluster. The Holy Spirit is the first fruits. 
He's like that bundle of grapes to us, the down payment to us of something greater. And again, it comes to us from God. He, the Spirit, comes to us from God. And so first fruits, that we have the first fruits, is a way of saying that we are assured, we are guaranteed with this down payment from God himself. Paul says it elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1, that when we believed, we were sealed. That means that we were stamped. God authenticated us, so to speak, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, that means he is the, the first fruits, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So until we are glorified, until we see Jesus face to face, until our sins are completely wiped away, not just in our justification, but in our glorification, until we have new bodies, until we get to see the Lord with our very own faces and feel his fingers wiping away our tears, until then we have the Spirit. The guarantee that Jesus will wipe away your tears. You have the spirits, the down payment on an eternal inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. Locked up in that eternal, as we might say, vault, and the Lord gives us a little bit of it now to say all of it's there and it's all waiting for you. But until then, you have the spirit. That's what we have. So we groan, we, we, we long inwardly because we only have, we might say only, have this down payment. We want the whole thing. We, we are longing for it. But there's something else here. We also groan inwardly because there's something that we don't have. What do we not have yet? Verse 23. We're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, Paul says in many places elsewhere that we already have this adoption. In fact, he says that right there in verse number 17, that you are a child of God. If children, then heirs. You've already been adopted. So why are we eagerly longing for adoption as sons, adoption as daughters, adoption as children? Because notice, there's something else to adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So like the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our eternal inheritance, Our adoption into the family of God is also sort of like a down payment of the fullness of what adoption is, that God takes us to himself, redeeming our bodies. Elsewhere, Paul describes our bodies in this life as tents, and our existence in this life, uh, in our existence in the life to come as a building. So our body is like a tent, life in eternity is like a building. One is transient, one is... Uh, and temporal ones, eternal and permanent. That's 2 Corinthians 5. There's something important there for us, I think, to realize that there's something more for us. We oftentimes talk about Jesus to our unsaved loved ones about what he gives us now. Forgiveness, adoption, law, uh, uh, belonging, Justification, we might describe that in some, in some ways of being accepted by God and allowed to approach him and so forth. But there's also something else that we need to learn here to be an effective witness. That we need to learn to be focused on the future. We're very this-worldly oriented as American Christians, but there's something more. Your neighbors need to see and hear from you that you look beyond the cross of this life to the crown of the life that is to come. They need to see that in you. They need you to show that Jesus enables human beings to look past, uh, to look past tribulation and to the triumph that is to come. So we've been adopted, but yet we're waiting for adoption. There's a tension there, you see. We have a lot already, but there's something yet we don't have. There's, there's tension, there's, there's some struggle there. Now, kids, you might have learned uh, in science about tension. What's tension? You might have learned about that. But you probably already know what it is by experience. If I were to give you a big rubber band right now and I was to hold one end of it and I said, pull that end as hard and as far as you can, and we would both pull that rubber band 
I go this way, you go that way, and in between there is this tension. It's no longer loose and rubbery, it's just hard and tight. There's a lot of tension there, isn't there? First one to let go, what happens? Uh-oh. <laughs> it, goes flying, it goes flying right at the other person. No one wants that. But that's what it's like to be a Christian. There's suffering now, there's glory to come, and we're pulled. We're pulled back or down by our sufferings, and we're pulled that way, and we're pulled upward, as it were, forward by the Holy Spirit to glory. You're in the middle, right there in that tension, right? Who's going to let go first? You know that your sufferings are for good, according to God's providence and His care for you. But you want it to stop. Who wants to suffer, after all? You know that Jesus endured great suffering for you, but you want to go see him face to face in eternity. And that tension that Paul is describing here is characterized in one word, verse 24, hope. Hope. For in this hope we were saved. The resolution of this tension between the sufferings that are pulling us this way and the glory that is pulling us that way, the resolution of that tension is the redemption of our bodies. Again, verse 23. When the Lord will raise our bodies on that last day and restore our bodies to a capacity to dwell in eternal fellowship with the holy and triune God. And that is what we should be hoping for as believers. This is what we should be patient for as Christians. And that is what we should be groaning for inwardly. Not the ending of our sufferings now, but Lord, I'm longing for the redemption of my body, that I might see you, not by faith, but I might see you in my very own sight. That like Thomas, I can touch the side and the wounds and the hands and feet and to know and to say, my Lord and my God. That's what we should be longing for as Christians. Groaning for. That's what the Holy Spirit was given to you as a down payment for. And so you see, Paul describes this as a hope because there, there are two kinds of hopes. There, there's an earthly hope and there is a heavenly hope. There's, a, there's an earthly or this worldly kind of a hope that, that you can see and you can touch, you can taste, smell and hear. But these things don't last. Are you hoping for money? prestige, even love. But this worldly hope in things and in other people always disappoints. The Christian hopes for the things of the world to come, and these things are fixed and satisfying. What kind of hope do you have? We might be asking, well, why should I why should I give up what I can experience now for what I have to wait for, right? That's a good American response to this. You know, why do I need to give up what I already have for a hope that is to come? Why is the Christian hope any better than mine? You see, our hope is not just a pious wish, you know, it's not just a, a fly-by-night thing. Our future hope that we will see God face-to-face, our bodies are going to be made new, all things are going to be made new, that future hope is based on past fact. And reality. And so for us, the hope of our putting off of our sins and living for eternity with God in new bodies is based on the reality of Jesus' new body, the resurrection of the dead. He rose again on the third day, and because he did, therefore this is a hope for us that is certain and secured. Because he was really raised from the dead, then everything he ever said about the life of the world to come is true. So you see, true Christianity doesn't promise, as it's so often said today, and I'm sorry to have to break your, uh, burst your bubble today, but true Christianity does not promise a better you, a better career, a better marriage, a better life. It promises real joy and satisfaction in God that we already have now, but it calls us forward and upward and towards something that, that is more, something greater. So the creation is groaning. The Christian is groaning. 
The spirit also groans, we're told here. Notice he speaks here saying likewise. Along with the creation and our own groaning, the spirit, he says, helps us in our weakness. He speaks here of the assistance of the Holy Spirit's groaning. Why? Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. That's a telling phrase, isn't it? Have you thought about that phrase? We, believers, do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. Those of us who've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, to be God's children, we ought to know how to pray, when to pray, why to pray. But we don't, Paul says. This is Paul saying this. Don't don't forget that. This is Paul saying this. You see, our ongoing struggles with this, this worldly sufferings and the effects of the fallen world and our own sins affects our ability to pray as we ought. Think about it this way. Isn't it usually the case that every large problem in our life starts small? Like a large avalanche, we only see the end result of it. We see the the avalanche, but it always starts small. A small rock falls and begins to gather some snow, then some more snow, then half the side of the mountain. It's the same with us in prayer. Some little singular selfish decision or some sinful attitude of ours gets in the way and it clouds our minds about our needs. And then we begin letting all the cares, as Jesus described, the cares and troubles of the world around us get in the way, become obstacles for us, to become too busy to even utter a word to God in prayer. And then we, be, and then we feel the feelings of guilt because we haven't prayed and we've let someone or something get in the way of our praying. And that guilt only makes us sink further into even more spiritual depression, which keeps us from praying as we ought. That's something small becoming something big. But Paul says, if that's you today, there's good news, the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. Us who do not pray as we ought. And what's so encouraging about his assistance is the affection of his groaning, the Spirit's groaning. Notice that he groans, not as some impersonal assistant on your phone, like that automated voice. I can't get that thing to work right. Can you? Anybody know how to work that thing? I have no idea. I have my AirPods in. I'm listening to a podcast. Someone texts me uh, something else. I have no idea how to respond. Do you say respond? Do you say reply? Do you have to say Siri's name? Is Siri even a real person, right? Does she, does she even have it? I mean, it, I, can't, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. The Spirit of God is personal, though. Personal, right? There are these assistants out there, and they're, they're impersonal. They're not real. That little word helps. The Spirit helps us because He is the person of the Holy Spirit. Helps us. Because he himself is affected by our weakness and so takes upon himself our burden. The burden of not knowing how to pray as we ought. The Spirit likewise helps us in that weakness. When you're at the bottom of the avalanche and you're feeling utterly guilty for not praying because you had done something or because you allowed someone to do something to you, because you had a bad idea in your head, because you sinned some way, you had a sinful thought, a sinful attitude, all those little things that begin that big thing, the Spirit likewise helps you in that avalanche because He's the Holy Spirit. He's not passive, notice that. Not Himself even knowing how to pray. He's a participant with us in our time of need. How? He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, meaning they are beyond words or they are without words. Notice that. We don't pray with words as we ought. The Spirit doesn't even need a word to help us. And here's this precious promise and touching truth to us. While we groan in prayer, not even knowing the right words to pray for the actual needs of our own soul, let alone someone else, God the Holy Spirit groans for us, for you, for me. 
It's like having someone who comes alongside to feel our sorrows, to know what we're going through, who's able to assist and to help. Very early in the, after the days of my own personal conversion, I uh, had a dear brother who came by my side and who helped me, who prayed for me, and who prayed with me. That's what he's describing here, someone who comes alongside, that someone is the Holy Spirit. The promise to us is that we have not only Jesus as our advocate, intercessor, and mediator, we also have the Holy Spirit. As if having Jesus wasn't enough, God, the Holy Spirit, comes alongside of us. One writer said, the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven. The Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. But what good is it to have someone else praying for me? Only to have their prayers, like mine, so often feeling like they are unanswered or unacceptable to God. So what does it matter if someone else is praying for me, if they're they are also burdened like I am, and they're also not praying as they ought. This is the Holy Spirit, don't forget that. This is the Holy Spirit, though. That's why verse 27 is so key. Not only does the Spirit assist us as He is affected by our weakness, but His groanings before God on our behalf are accepted. Notice that. They're accepted by God. He who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. We read these verses, and usually verse 27 is it's sort of the confusing, head-scratching verse in the collection of verses here. You know, what does that have to do with anything? What does that even mean? Verse 27 again. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. But notice the he there. The he there is God. In particular, the Father he, the Father, God the Father, searches hearts. He knows every single one of us already, so don't try to hide. He knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. How? Because although there, we des describe God as the Scriptures do with these three distinctions, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, how many gods are there again? The Father is God, we said in the Athanasian Creed. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. These are not three gods. That's, that's the earlier part of the Athanasian Creed, but there's not three gods. There's one God. All co-equal, all co-eternal, all co-substantial, we might say, all co-powerful, and so forth. God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct Persons, we use that language, yet they share in the same omniscience, the same all-knowing of all things. The same, the, the Father who knows and searches hearts and knows all things, that's the same with the Holy Spirit who knows all things. But my prayers are so futile, we might think. My mind is so clouded with my sin. My heart is so faithless. I don't pray as I ought. And I say to you, yes. You're right. You're right. But God knows what is in your mind, and He knows what is in the mind of the Spirit at the same time. Don't forget, likewise, He helps us. He helps us. The Father knows that your, your mind is empty. You're not praying as you ought. You're not even praying. He knows the mind of the Spirit, who likewise groans with groanings that are too deep for words. Notice verse 27 again. Because the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. Have you ever prayed for something that didn't happen? You ever asked God for something that didn't come true? Does the Spirit of God intercede in that kind of a way? Absolutely not. Does the Spirit ever have a frustrated prayer? A frustrated intercession? No. You do not pray as you ought you don't pray for what you ought. You don't pray how you ought. But the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. There's not a tension between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are not, 
there's not this, 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 this fight and this struggle between them. One desires one thing, one desires another. No. The Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. And what he intercedes for, he's going to get. We might put it that way. What he asks for comes true. What you need when you don't pray as you ought, always, the Lord always gives what you need. So when you don't pray for what you ought, according to God's will, and it doesn't come true, the Spirit always does. And here's the assurance and confidence that we can have before God. He hears us because the Spirit within us intercedes alongside with us. So that even if our prayer misses the mark, we know that the Spirit of God's intercession is always going to get us there, we might say. He prays perfectly, and God hears, and God accepts, and God answers. And so this Advent season, may it be a season that you you and I come to realize that we live amidst many, many sufferings in this age, but we come to realize that we do so in the light of Jesus having come and the promise that he's coming again, his second advent. And may this Christian hope that we have, that we can live life and see the sufferings that we have in light of eternity, they're not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And may that hope that we have, may that hope cause you who may not identify as a Christian, want what we want, to see our lives in the light of eternity. Our life matters. God's made us, and God has a plan for us, and he's going to get us there. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading and the meditation upon your word, that we would hear it with profit today, grow in our faith, live a life full of meaning uh, in the light of eternity, and use that confidence that we have to draw others to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. If you have that hymnal, uh, you want to